0: Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month-ish, pending a crumbling society, I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. I feel incredibly weird saying this, but I love this episode. And it's weird because it's obviously about someone's deepest trauma, but I really feel like I understand the full picture of my guest's mom, the good, the bad, the complex, the bits we don't often get to experience of our parents, the pieces that essentially make them a real person. I appreciated my guest's candor so much and his really incredible storytelling ability. I'll now stop referring to him as my guest and introduce him. This episode, I interviewed Jake Adler. Jake is a digital strategy director at a public strategy and political consulting firm in New York. Jake's mom died when he was 11. She passed away from sudden hypertensive arterial sclerosis, essentially a heart attack, likely brought on by her many diseases, including muscular dystrophy, Lyme disease, Crohn's disease, Hodgkin lymphoma, and others. That being said, Jake and his older siblings suspect the heart attack was caused by suicide via an intentional OD of her many medications.
1: Uh, So my mom grew up in Queens in New York City in a part of town called Fresh Meadows. She grew up Jewish. Um, I don't don't think they were, her parents weren't uh, very religious. They were like a secular Jewish family. She met my dad at a summer camp in upstate New York Um, in a town called Point Jervis. I think it was called Camp Greenkill. She was a couple years younger than my dad, and they only really knew each other at summer camp, even though my dad lived in Queens um, as well. They would just kind of meet every summer at this camp um, and have these little teenage flings. But then she got older, and he got older, and then the camp stopped. And then there's just kind of a blank period, where no one really knows where she was at. There's like a couple of friends that she has that have talked to me about jobs she worked or like she, she traveled to Europe and things like that. But the story kind of goes dark until she runs into my dad's brother, my uncle, at a gas station like 10 years later in her late 20s. And my uncle knew that uh, they used to like hook up at this summer camp and suggested that she get in touch with my father, who might be interested in hearing from her. And she did just that, and then they met, and the rest is history from there. But I do know um, when she was younger, I mean, she went to New York University. She studied at Tisch for ballet. Um, She's a very artistic person, a very creative person. And from what my dad says about their time kind of like rekindling their romance from their teenage years as adults, um, years and years later after summer camp you know, he kind of describes himself as this sort of brute jockey kind of guy who was just really into sports and hanging with the boys. And that my mom sort of opened up this world of like the arts uh, to him in that she, I guess like a, a lot of the earliest dates was taking him around to the MoMA and the Met and seeing all sorts of dance shows and plays and concerts and different museums and just blowing his mind with how big the world was and how much there was to learn so uh, it's upsetting to me in that i don't i don't know where she got all that knowledge from or what experience she had that led her to be so um involved in the arts or so drawn to them but i know that uh she exuded like the arts to her friends and to my father um in a way that inspired others to open their perspectives try new things try new kinds of food seek out new experiences um And it just uh, really made my dad fall in love with her in a huge way. They got married in 1980, had my brother six years later, and then myself six years after that.
0: Ballet is so specific, too. Do you know when she stopped dancing or when she decided to not pursue that long term? Or was it like never a long term plan?
1: From what I understand, it was always a long term plan. She wanted to be a professional dancer. She did it. Um, as a young girl, all the way through her teenage years, then into young adulthood, she was also a painter. But her mother, my grandmother, had muscular dystrophy, which is just an awful disease that just eats away at your muscle tissue to the point that you your body just kind of shuts down. You're just essentially paralyzed. And it's hereditary, and sometimes you're born with it, and sometimes it enters your life at a later stage. And into her early 30s, it started to creep up on her she was getting pains she was noticing something was wrong and then you know she was diagnosed with the disease um which sort of just completely shattered her her dreams of being a dancer i mean even i remember talking to her about it she was also big into swimming like uh, you know she was a very active person um, uh, from what it sounds like as a young person and uh um, after that diagnosis and after she noticed her her muscles were literally starting to deteriorate inside of her own body she, you know that that uh, pursuit of ballet and professional dance, I think uh, it was just dashed. I mean, (laughs) she was definitely ambitious in that regard. My father and her both ended up becoming uh, public school teachers. My dad started out as a PE coach and then started to teach um, special ed um, English. And then my mom became naturally an art teacher uh, for elementary school kids. But I know she was not thrilled with the way her life ended up in that regard. Um, It's certainly not where I think she imagined herself as a young person. Um, If you had asked her where she saw herself at, you know, age 40, I don't think it would have been an elementary school art classroom. My parents, after they had my brother, um, it was like 1986, decided to hightail it out of New York City. They both lived. In Queens their whole lives, um, New York City was turning into a shithole in the 80s. You know, their words, not necessarily mine, but you can do your research on 80s in, in New York City. My dad's parents had recently moved to Arizona to just be old people and hang out in, an, in a place that were, where it didn't snow and it was nice and warm, and uh, visited them. and My parents decided to follow them out to Arizona to have kids. Um, again, they were, they were both teachers and felt like they would just get more bang for their buck on teachers' salaries in Arizona, which at the time was, uh, the Phoenix was pretty empty, um, and give us, as kids, um, more than they could have given us in in the city. They didn't didn't want us to grow up in, like, small apartments like they did. You know, they felt like they could buy a house, have a swimming pool, so forth. That's all to say, I remember being pretty young, maybe seven or eight, driving with my mom through the desert somewhere in Arizona and having some kind of conversation about like where I saw myself going and like what, you know, the classic, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I mentioned teaching, um, seeing her and my dad do it and thinking it's not so bad. You know, I felt pretty lucky that as a kid, you know, uh, when it was summertime, We were off as a family, you know, no one had to work, no one had school. Whereas my friends, I saw, you know, their parents were still working they still had jobs. But um, for us, the summer, it was just playtime for everybody. We got to travel, we got to hang out. Being a teacher didn't seem so bad to me at the time. And I blurted it out and she, I just remember her looking over and being like, "I don't want that for you." You know, the whole the whole point of this <laughs> is to is to have you do something greater than you know I've done or that your father has done. Um, teaching is is uh, a means to an end; it it pays the bills, but it's not something I want to see you become. It's just just a, just a repeat of us. It was just strange because then, you know, I, I did end up teaching for a couple of years. Uh, I did follow that path and end up becoming a teacher, but I didn't enjoy it. And I I got, you know, I really understood what she meant by that. It To me, it really wasn't, it wasn't an easy life. That's a, that's a hard job for not a lot of pay. I can see why she was unhappy with it. And even my dad, you know, now he's retired. He's just, you know. I can't imagine um, being a teacher for forty plus years. It's just uh, an exhausting profession. But when I quit teaching, I remembered that conversation and felt like it's probably good that I'm getting out because it's I, something I know my mom would want me to do it would be to get the fuck out of this profession. I remember us getting like a nine, like a win, like a 1995 Macintosh, um, you know, like an early computer, and. That was, you know, the internet wasn't really a big thing yet. It was coming. But she, I felt, I think, felt that, you know, it was like time to get a computer. She was very excited about technology and very excited about the internet and its potential. And I remember, like, if I don't know, I don't know if you recall, like, Kid KidPix was like a program on Mac or Windows or something way back when. And it's essentially like Microsoft Paint, but you could just like draw on the screen and make like digital illustrations and things like that. And we would just like spend hours together doing that on a computer. So I think for her, it was exciting to be like, this is the future of art. Everything's going to happen on machines. But for me, it was like the fancy new toy that we had in the house. Um, My father, by comparison, is kind of a Luddite. in when it comes to technology and my mom was always bringing new things into the house, bringing in, you know, the new TV, the new video game system. Um, We played video games a lot together and I don't know. I I, other than art, obviously, I mean, she took me to museums and took me to shows, and we talked about science together. We'd go to like the planetarium in Phoenix or the zoo and uh, talk about biology or talk about astronomy. You know, she was well versed in like a million topics and uh, could answer all of uh, a young kid's annoying questions of like why, why, why this, why that. But yeah, when you ask that question of like what did she really expose you to, like I think. I would say technology. I you know that sounds like silly. I'm trying to like work it out in my brain now as you ask that question, but um, uh, it's something that like really became a big part of my life. I've always been like a writer, and so for a while I was really into video games, um, which I definitely escaped to um, after her death. But for a while, I was like pretty convinced that I was going to be like a video game journalist, like writing about the video game industry and things like that. But I just don't know. If I would would have ended up there or like been so interested in things like I am now, like social media and digital communications and uh, the way that the Internet is reshaping the whole world as we know it, um, had it not been for kind of sitting there with her um, in the earliest nascent days of Internet computing and seeing her excitement and all of the the lights in her brain kind of spark up at, at the potential of what was coming. Things now feel very foggy to me when I think back on her. The memories that I do have, she was an exceptional mother. And she spoke to my brother and I as adults constantly. I don't ever remember feeling like condescended to or like she was like ever used like baby talk with us or any kind of language. It's like, well, you understand that when you get older, you know, we talked about politics and like I said, outer space and biology and the nature of the universe and all of like the big hard questions, even like things like, you know, what happens when you die and is God real and things like that. And, uh, you know, we had conversations like that when I was like six, seven, eight. Um, and I'm not sure that like a lot of parents (laughs) would sit with their kids and have such frank conversations about such heavy, I guess we would say adult or complex topics, she really encouraged us to like think for ourselves and be who we wanted to be. There was never, I remember like, you know, we didn't grow up religious, but if I had questions about religion, because kids in my class would go to church or go to synagogue or whatever, it was always, you know, if you want to go, I'll take you, you know, I'll show you what's there. And if you like it, we can keep going, but we just, you know, we just don't go now. But if you want to check it out, well, you can try it. You know, if you want to do this, we'll do, we'll do it. Um, There was never any like, nothing was ever imposed on us. There was no identity assigned to us or, you know, you need to get good at this or you need to learn that. Um, It was just constantly, does this interest you? Well, then you should pursue it. And how can we help you pursue it? You know, you like video games? Well, then let's get the new video game system. Do you want to program video games? Let's start taking summer classes about Mm -hmm. video game programming. You know, it was whatever we wanted to do, whatever we showed an inclination towards she highly encouraged it it was like whatever we wanted to be interested in she wanted to be interested in and it got her excited to see us i think kind of develop our personalities the the older i get and the more people i meet the more i realize how special it was uh our like our our upbringing i mean if i look like way back before like say like eight years old it's it looks to me like a classic almost like sitcom a family of four in in the United States, you know, it's just uh, my parents were quirky teachers um, from New York living in Arizona with thick Queens accents. My older brother loved theater and drama and would do all of like the school plays and, you know, stay late after school to do that sort of stuff. And then I was kind of like the quieter nerdy, more introverted, uh younger brother, always with a nose in a book or, you know, my action figures or video games. And I think we, we all had like a really strong relationship with each other, like independently. Like my brother and I were really close. He was really close to my mom. I was really close to my mom. My mom and dad were very close. My dad was close to me. My dad was close to my brother. Like we all had our own unique relationship with each member of the household. And then Therefore, we all were very tight as a as a group of four. Uh, I remember we were in the pool one day in the summertime. You know, we had a pool. It was very nice. Now I'm like, I understand why my parents left New York. Like the diseases I named is only like half of it. I I don't even know how many she had or what they all were. But I remember, again, like swimming with her in the pool and her telling me that like one of her diseases was like something in her brain. That was the way she like put it to me was that like, there's a, you know, a virus or a disease in her brain that is eating away at her brain cells. And the disease is smart because it knows if it eats too much of the brain, it's going to die because it has no more brain left to eat. So it has to eat the brain slowly so that it can stay alive longer. That's like an insane thing to hear as a kid to look at your mother in the pool and go, there's something in your head that's eating your brain and it's doing it with a plan it has a strategic plan to eat your brain and i just remember like starting to ball in the pool because uh, that was such a horrifying image and thought to know that that was happening as we spoke and i just remember hugging her in the pool and her being like i'm not gonna die this is something that will happen and you know in a long time from now it's not anytime soon you know this, this the disease takes a long time to kill somebody But still to know like you know everyone knows death is coming (laughs) you know you can't beat it but to know that there were so many villains like in hot pursuit of my mother trying to take her down uh, was just a horrifying thought things definitely got rocky i would say around the time i turned eight Um, My mom got sicker. Um, Not only at this point did she have muscular dystrophy that she inherited from her mother, but she contracted Lyme disease. She had Hodgkin's lymphoma. um, She developed Crohn's. So at this point, her body was absolutely ravaged by multiple diseases um, to the point that she was in doctor's appointments two or three times a week. She was on all sorts of medication to kind of curb the effects of the disease and then curb the effects of the drugs that were fighting the disease. And it got to a point where she just like couldn't work anymore. You know, she was an elementary school teacher. So by noon or 1 p.m. on a school day, she would just be absolutely exhausted. Just like couldn't keep herself up, needed to, you know, go to sleep. So she quit teaching, took like an early retirement, went on government disability. And I think that really changed my mom and dad's dynamic for a time. I think in the same way that she did not want her, you know, her life to end up this way and felt like, you know, her dreams and her, you know, very day to day existence was being threatened and changed against her will. I feel like my dad, you know, this isn't, he ended up being in a place where this isn't the kind of marriage that he expected, you know, to have to worry about his spouse being so ill still so early on in their lives and I guess in their marriage. And my mom started to accuse him of like cheating on her. There were rumors of infidelity with like other teachers at the school. There was a moment where she fled the house. My brother was probably on the phone, like talking to friends. I was probably playing video games. I think my dad was taking a nap and she just like left her cell phone behind took some cash, took her car and bailed. And, you know, a couple hours later, we all kind of looked around at each other and we were like, where's mom? No one knows where she went. So she was gone for a couple of days and I freaked out. I mean, it was definitely, to me, that's like a my first, like, major trauma in life. You know, everything was kind of like rosy until she ran away. And it felt like, you know, of course, as a kid, like, what did I do wrong? Did we piss her off? And she called us, I remember from a payphone a couple of days later, because our caller ID couldn't pick up, like, where she was. Uh, told my dad that she wanted him out of the house for a, a little while. She was going to come back home, but needed him out because she wanted to talk to my brother and I alone. So my dad left. She came home. I was very excited to see her, obviously. And she sat us down and told us that she uh, had left intending to kill herself because the disease, the many diseases in her body were making her miserable and making life unlivable. So she left and was going to take basically like all the meds that she had all at once um, to intentionally like OD on them so that she could get out of the situation. And also, I think it was fueled by the feelings that she had around my dad's, her her suspicions, um, still unverified to this day, of whether or not he was cheating on her. I think she was just miserable. But she told us she sat down to write each of us uh, like a suicide note, like a final, you know, message from our mother, and that the act of doing that Uh, convinced her to, that she needed to stay alive, that writing those notes was, was so painful to think about us having to grow up with just that note to explain why she was gone, made her think twice. She told us she literally burned the letters and that now she was back and wanted to at least remain alive until I graduated high school, because at that point she felt like we both would have been ready to go off into our lives without a mother. I was like eight years old and that was a pretty heavy conversation to have. And I remember, you know, I don't think I could really take in like, you were gonna kill yourself. Like, why did you wanna kill yourself? I just, the bottom line for me was mom's home and she's telling us that she's not gonna do that again. That's that's as a kid at that age, that's all I really wanted to hear. It obviously left an impact on me in that I became very worried about her and very suspicious about her movements. Probably for like the next couple of years, like pretty frequently, if I would wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, I would kind of tiptoe to my parents' room to like peer in and make sure that she was like still in bed. Or, you know, even on any like random afternoon, I would just be freaked out and just go find her because did just wanted to make sure she hadn't like run off. like a really creepy memory I have is one of those nights I like tiptoed into the room and saw that she wasn't there. This is like three in the morning or something. And I freaked out and started like looking all around the house, like probably like eight or nine here still in the dark, going into every room to try to find her. And I think on like my second or third pass through the living room. I realized that she was just like sitting on the couch in the dark And finally called out my name and she was like, what are you doing? I was like, I was looking for you. And she's like, I'm fine. I just can't sleep. I'm just like, I'm just sitting up awake thinking about things. That's all I really remember of that conversation. But just now that I'm older and have like more context, the, you know, the thought of, you know, my mother sitting alone in the middle of the night in total darkness in her own thoughts is just so telling of. Where she was at mentally those years is definitely a, a strange thing to be exposed to at a young age and to watch like this deterioration of her both physically and mentally at a young age and not really understand like why it was happening. You know, if she was leaving the house by herself, I wanted to know where she was going. Did she have her cell phone? Was it charged? Like, can I get in touch with you? You're not like disappearing again. I don't know if she ever really told my dad in such detail about like the suicide notes. I think when they spoke, it was probably more about, you know, these rumors about him cheating on her and what the future of their marriage looked like. And probably her standing, like rattling off a list of demands of I'm here and I'm alive. And if you want to keep me around, like this is what it's going to take. I think for them, it was less an issue of like her life and more an issue of like, are they going to make this marriage work going forward? I've never really spoken to my dad about that conversation. I don't think my brother has either, but we all are aware. I mean, my dad, I mean, we certainly talked about her her mental health issues and how depressed she was. You know, I think if if we, if we I talk about that time with my dad, I hear a lot of, yeah, she, you know, it was a very hard time for her. Of course, she was feeling this way. She was very sick and, um, you know, had mental health issues already and it just... Those were exacerbated by the uh, increasing intensity of the many diseases that she was carrying. So it was just a rough time for her, and then things turned around. It does, I mean, even in my memory, it. after that, things did seem to get better. My mom and dad seemed happier. There weren't any arguments. Any rumor or feeling that my dad was cheating on her seemed to just vanish. He certainly did seem like more attentive, more committed, like recommitted to uh, the marriage and our family. Uh, and she did seem like happy or at least like contented up until the time she died. I mean, I, I was there when she died. I was kind of woken up by... Uh, a siren and like flashing red lights in my window and the sound of like a big truck. And when I looked out the window, it was like a big fire truck in front of our house. And I heard our front door open and my dad talking to some people. So sure enough, I got out of bed and went out into the house and into their bedroom to find my dad with my mom on the floor and a bunch of EMTs, paramedics, whatever, um, around her. And I, you know, that's an insane sight. So I just lost it and uh, was like, what's happening? And my dad was like, you know, mom's pretty sick and we're gonna take her to the hospital. And I just, I remember I ran into my brother's room to wake him up because my dad seemed so obviously involved with these men in suits around my mom with all this equipment. I remember thinking as a kid, like, my brother's not going to wake up unless he thinks it's really serious. You know, he'll just roll over and go back to sleep and tell me it's fine. So what's like the scariest thing I can say to him to get him to wake up? I'll just tell him that mom is dying. And I remember shaking him awake and being like, mom's dying. You need to get up. But in my heart, not believing that that was the case, I was like, of course, she's not dying. She's just really sick today. So he got up with me. We went back into the room. I mean. It was like a nasty scene. They, they pulled out the paddles and just like on TV, you know, shouted clear and threw the paddles on her chest. And I saw her feet go up. And I think I must've like screamed or freaked out at that because I remember like one of the firefighter dudes being like, you know, calling to my dad and being like, can you get the kids out of here? And my dad pushing us out of the room and closing the door behind us while they did their work. My brother and I sat on the couch together and didn't talk. Then they came in with a stretcher, pulled my mom out. Of course, we wanted to know immediately if she was dead. My dad said no, but her pulse is really faint and we're gonna follow them to the hospital. So get some pants on. When we got to the hospital, uh, they put us in a little room, which now looking back is like, you know, that little room is never a, uh, a good omen. And a doctor came in and told us that she'd passed away in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And that, uh, you know, despite their best efforts, upon arrival, she's they can't revive her. <laughs> asked if we wanted, like, you know, a father or a reverend to to come in, and my dad was like, "No, get the fuck out of here." Left us alone, just the three of us. Uh, I mean, that was just a total intense moment of shock. I, I remember, <laughs> you know, I, I guess like it's normal, but I feel guilty now having this thought of like. The doctor leaving the room and my first thought being like, well, I'm not going to school tomorrow. You know, my mom's dead, so I'm not going to go to school. Which, like, looking back as an adult, you know, you can always, like, throw it out as like, oh, well, you're in shock. It's like, you're a kid. How are you supposed to process this? I also feel guilty that, like, that's my first thought uh, upon hearing that news. And again, just remember, like, losing it and hugging my dad and just sobbing uncontrollably, all of us. We were allowed to, like, go in and see her. And, like, to this day, I'm furious that they didn't really, like, bother to clean her up. I think, you know, we went in to see her and her eyes were still open, you know, or her lips were blue. Uh, And I went to, like, hold her hand and it was frozen. You know, it was cold and the fingers wouldn't move. And, like, looking at somebody who looked like my mom but wasn't my mom, you know, it's like... Definitely the first time I've ever seen a dead body, and it was like horrifying. You know, it looked like a movie prop. You know, it was like, there's just no soul there anymore. And when we walked out, the doctor who had told us that she had died, we walked past his office and I remember he had his feet up on his desk and his arms like clasped or his hands clasped behind his head and was talking to like some colleague and feeling like a tremendous amount of rage that this guy who failed to save my mom could so easily just be like chilling in his office after he just informed a family that, you know, their mother, or their wife was gone. Um, that's like a, p- a particularly strong image in my head. And then. You know, the next several days were just filled with, like, my dad making phone calls, people coming and going from the house, you know, the class. I think I remember my dad calling them, like, the casserole brigade. It was just, like, you know, my friends' parents, my brother's friends' parents, um, other members of our family just, like, constantly coming and going from the house, bringing, like, food, groceries, like, talking to us, like, trying to talk to me and, I remember feeling like it was all like really forced and that I just didn't really want anybody around, but they just kept coming, which of course is like the nice thing to do. But I remember a friend of mine and his mom took me out to like an arcade, um, in the, like the few days after she died. Cause it was just like, I think, you know, they had told my dad like, Oh, it will be good for him. Like, let's get him out. Like, you know, get him to an arcade. It'll be like, things are normal. And like halfway through the play date, you know, I was just like, I want to go home. I don't really want to be here. I just want to be with my dad. I want to be sitting in my living room. And it definitely feels like there was just such a permanent shift in like my personality and my state of mind, uh, just generally after she passed. If my innocence wasn't totally burst when she had run away that one time, it was definitely completely deflated after her death.
0: And I remember you had said in your message to me that you and your brother had suspected that it was a different cause. When did you two have that conversation? Was it later in life or was it like immediately after? Because obviously there's parts of, you know, parts of that talk that was still imprinted on you. Was it something that you didn't come back to till way later?
1: Yeah, I want to say like she died when I was 11 and my brother was 17. I want to say that my brother and I didn't really have like a true heart-to-heart about like, you know, hey, like, what do you remember about that night? How did you feel when it all went down until I was maybe like 16, 15 even? And I think we we both just started to like put the pieces together in our heads because I remember the day, like she, you know, she died overnight. But I remember she picked me up from school that day and the plan was to go grocery shopping which I hated doing for some reason, Now I love it. But (laughs) then uh, I was just like, you know, I guess it's just, you know, I left school and I don't want to go grocery shopping. And I got in the car with her and she was like, well, we're we're not going to go grocery shopping today after all. And I was like, why? She's like, I'm just feeling especially tired. I was like, okay, you know, that's normal. Mom's tired. But she made (laughs) what we called Jakey's dinner, which was just like my favorite meal that she made, which was like, (laughs) A really dumb meal looking back, but it's like frozen Tyson's chicken tenders uh, with mashed potatoes and like barbecue sauce and like corn, like total cafeteria food. But I just love that shit. It's the best. Um, It's so good. Um, (laughs) And she just like randomly decided to make it that night. After after dinner, I remember like sitting in my room watching TV and it was like 8, 8.30. And my mom came in to just like say goodnight. And I thought that was weird because like we only said goodnight when I was like actually going to sleep and like turning off the lights and rolling over and going to bed. So it felt like a really preemptive, like out of character, like goodnight. I was like, what do you mean goodnight? Like I'm still awake. I'm not going to bed yet. And like, neither are you. So why are you like saying goodbye to me for the day? And she was like, well, you know, I'm just tired. I'm just doing it now. I was like, okay, that's weird. But like, I'll say goodnight to you when I'm actually going to bed. And a little later, my dad came in to actually like be like, okay, like lights out, you know, it's bedtime. And I said, you know, send mom in. And he was like, she says she already said goodnight to you. And I was like, I don't care, like, send her in again. And when she came in that second time, it was like, she couldn't look at me. Like she gave me like a quick hug and a kiss and said goodnight. Um, but I remember like her face was never on mine. It was just, constantly like looking at the door to get back out of the room. My brother was working at a cafe in high school, was working the closing shift, and his account of it now is that when he came home, you know, being an angsty teenager at 11.30 p.m., has to get up for class at 6, you know, bursted into the house, wanted to just get, get to bed, and my mom was just trying to, like, ask him about how his how his shift was, how his day was, and he was trying to just rush the conversation and was like, he says, and this is, like, his deep regret, is he was like whatever mom it's not like i'm never gonna see you again and um stormed out of the room and like went to bed so between like my experience of like her final hours this moment where she was like listen like i love you like and he was like why are you being weird i just i'm gonna go to bed like don't act all weird i'll see you in the morning uh it just indicates to us that like something was amiss yeah
2: um
1: she wasn't quite acting herself and In the weeks prior, she'd had like her best friend come into town and visit. She'd had our uncle, her brother come into town. My dad and her had gone out on like double dates to like concerts with a few of like their favorite couple friends recently. Like if we piece the timeline together, it's kind of like, oh, she was sort of doing maybe like final sort of roundup of her favorite people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, seeing all these people one last time. Uh, until she got to the point where it was like she was ready. And she had already told us how she'd do it, which was taking a bunch of pills. And my dad had ordered an autopsy and told us that the doctor said she had died of hypertensive arteriosclerosis, which I like memorized immediately. And that's essentially just three of her four arteries of her heart just completely decided to close up and give her a sudden heart attack which killed her but it seemed strange to my brother and i that being poured over by several different doctors for several different diseases not one of them noticed that maybe her heart wasn't doing so well like a major organ in the body no one saw that her arteries weren't doing so great and that she was headed for an imminent heart attack uh and that you know od'ing on pills can cause a heart attack. So sure, maybe she died of a heart attack, but it might have been brought on by the pills. Um, And just the way she was acting at the time, you know, no one knows uh, a mother like the mother's kid. And I think in talking to my brother, both of us just felt something was off with her that evening. But of course, you know, we've brought that theory to a lot of those same people, my dad, our family, um, her best friend, uh, her brother all, you know, stating our suspicions, telling them our account of what had happened. But everyone says, you know, no, no, she was doing really great at that time. She was really happy. You know, she told everyone she was doing good. She was feeling good in her body. You know, she wasn't as depressed. She and your father were getting along great, but they always say like when someone decides to go, they're almost just that much happier. There's this like sudden influx of contentment because they know it's temporary. And you're better able to appreciate what's around you in your final days because you know that you're you're there your final days.
0: Yeah, and you're finally in control of something since you've spent so right. much time out of control of what happens. And yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: but of course, you know, then the the linchpin that gets pulled out of the plan that gives it legitimacy is that uh, my dad always reminds us, you know, like in that conversation she had with you about the suicide notes, you know. And in conversations apparently she had with my father you know she really wanted to be there for your high school graduation you know it was always her intent to see you turn 18 and finish high school that was her benchmark of when she could finally let go so uh you know according to my father there's, there's no way she would have uh pulled the plug on herself so to speak before then she seemed very intent on on seeing you at least get through high school but Uh, the signs are there and we'll never really know uh, what happened and uh, honestly at the end of the day I feel like if it was a suicide I forgive her there's no I don't feel angry at her for it Um, I don't feel resentful I don't feel bitter it could have just been a totally natural death I mean she certainly had enough diseases to take down anything Um, so if it was natural then it was natural but if it was self-inflicted then I kind of get it and I don't blame her and I feel like my dad really stepped up and kicked ass in the wake of her death to make sure that uh, life would go on as unchanged as possible for my brother and I so.
0: Steven Universe created by Rebecca Sugar is a coming-of-age story about Steven a half-human boy, half-gem boy. Steven lives with magical humanoids named the Crystal Gems, and he helps them protect the world from monsters and other threats to mankind. Steven, an empathetic and nurturing hero, inherited his gemstone from his mom and former Crystal Gem leader, Rose Quartz. Throughout the series, Steven gradually learns more about his powers and ultimately wants to live up to his mom's legacy.
1: Steven Universe, is, I think, is like a, a complete work of art. It's just beautifully written, beautifully animated, and it explores what I think is like every imaginable type of interpersonal relationship you can come up with. And it does so in like a really sincere, insightful, uh, just inspiring way.
0: She may only appear in flashbacks throughout the show, but she's a steady presence. And in an Emmy-nominated episode, Lion 3 Straight to Video, Stephen finds a videotape that Rose Quartz made for him. (laughs) What are you doing? Stephen, that voice. Isn't it remarkable, Stephen? This world is full of so many possibilities. Each living thing has an entirely unique experience. The sights they see, the sounds they hear, the lives they live are so complicated, and so simple. I can't wait for you to join them. Steven, we can't both exist. I'm going to become half of you. And I need you to know that every moment you love being yourself, that's me loving you and loving being you. Because you're going to be something extraordinary. You're going to be
1: a human being. Hey, Rose! Take care of them, Stephen.
0: In season four, Rose Quartz appears in an episode, Storm in the Room. In this episode, Stephen fixates on a painting of his mom. He wants to know the real Rose, not the Rose everyone else tells him about. And then a version of his mom appears.
2: You know, sometimes I wonder if it's even you up there. Smiling all day and night. I just wanna know the real you. Not the you that everyone tells me about. I just wanna know the truth. I know nothing in here is real, but but I wanna see my mom. Hello, Steven. Um, it's... it's nice to meet you. (laughs) It's nice to meet you, too. (laughs) Um, sorry. This is a little weird for me. That's okay. So, what do you want to do? Oh, uh, I guess I hadn't thought that far ahead. Do you like video games?
0: So tell me about this game, Steven.
2: Well, I guess it's an arm wrestling simulator, which is a spinoff of a fighting game based on a show about a lonely swordsman that I like. It's kind of weird and hard to explain, but that's why I like it.
1: That sounds just marvelous. Yeah,
2: I won! Yay, you won. What else do kids do with their parents? I've been, uh, thinking about you a lot lately more than usual is that so yeah well for my whole life i've been hearing stories about you about how amazing you were that you were so kind and loving and every time i'd see the painting of you hanging in the temple i'd be inspired and reminded of how much i had to live up to
1: it's a particularly resonant moment for me because in that clip Stephen is like has this opportunity to meet a, like a version of his mother it's essentially like a recording, you know, or like a, like an AI backup of his mom. Um, but he gets to do so as like an older kid and ask her all sorts of questions. So, I mean, that moment is wild to me because it's something that I've always like daydreamed about. You know, like, wh- you know, if I could have one more conversation with her, what would I ask? You know, what would we talk about? Where would we be? How old would I be? You know, something I think of constantly, you know, like, If I knew that day that she was going to die, you know, what would I have asked her? Even something like, you know, her suicide note that she burned up, like both my brother and I have said, like, I kind of wish now that like I had that note, you know, what would she have wanted to say to us as like her final words? It's tough to know. So it's something I feel like I'm always grasping for and thinking of in life It's like, what would mom say about this? What would mom do? How would she, you know, perceive me or judge me based on this action or this thing that I've done? So, yeah, watching Stephen have this, like, real heart-to-heart with his mom and getting this kind of, like, second chance to be able to really meet her and understand, you know, the weight of that conversation, knowing that it's going to essentially be, like, their first and last, you know, really made an impact on me.
0: As the show goes on, we find out more and more about Stephen's mother. Although a hero, the stories everyone has told Stephen weren't the full picture of her. There was, in fact, a lot more.
1: Stephen's mother has kind of a dark past. And as much as like she's revered, she's also reviled for things that she's done to hurt other people. You know, it, it's kind of like a moment in the show where Stephen is forced to contend with the fact that his mother isn't so perfect. And that she didn't always do, you know, the most righteous thing she made mistakes she hurt people in the show you know even like got some people killed and that's something that i've like you know had to contend with as well as i get older and realizing you know maybe the extreme honesty with which my mother spoke to my brother and i wasn't always like for the best and maybe scarred us a bit you know seeing in hindsight you know her depression and her her mental illness kind of get the better of her sometimes or uh, certain things that she said to my father or myself or my brother, you know, in times of like extreme weakness, it's just like, it's clear, you know, she's someone who's wholly human. And as much as I'd like to believe is just like this perfect angel It was just, you know, she's a human, like any of us and had her vices and had her anger and, and had her mistakes, um, throughout her life. And like Steven's mom to me in the show, my mom to me feels like very mercurial kind of mysterious like the fact that no one really knows like what she was up to in those 10 years between my dad knowing her at camp and then meeting her again to like start dating and get married it is like she's this person that's lived you know multiple lives even though her life was cut short people drifted in and out of her her life and knew parts of her, but did, had were completely blank on other parts of her. And, um, you know, she kept things pretty close to the chest. For someone who was so honest with us, it also, she also now, looking back, strikes me as somebody with a lot of secrets, which is uh, also characteristic of Steven's mom in the show. Steven's mother can only go so far in terms of what she can achieve in her life. And she's got to pass the torch to Steven, who is capable of, of doing much more than like she ever could. So in that way, yeah, I felt like having a conversation with my mom where she's telling us that um, her only reason for living at this point is so that she can be our mother and, and send us out into the world to do great things feels like a torch being passed on of just, you know, I was going to be a professional dancer. I was going to be a professional artist or do all these great things and inspire the world. And my body gave out on me. So I have to raise you two to do those things because I can't. And you're going to do them way better than I would be, ever, ever be able to. So kind of like seeing that play out in the show was something that I definitely grasped onto. Yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna like posit myself as Superman and be <laughs> like, I, this like white cis male, I'm gonna solve the world's problems. But I think that like anger and bitterness that I described earlier in my personality coming out of her death was spurned by this sense of like injustice and that like things are wrong in the world and people hurt a lot. Um, everywhere for many different reasons and we ought to do more to make sure that people don't feel this way. I don't know it, that that plus pot smoking with my dad brought me to poetry which <laughs> I think you know it's like something I studied in school as something I went to grad school for it's just I felt like the power of language was a really real thing and it's something that I wanted to leverage to make the world a better place.
0: But Steven's mother isn't the only parent-child relationship that was resonant in the show. Greg Universe, Steven's dad, is a fully human former rock star who is supportive, laid back, and optimistic.
1: Steven's dad in the show is kind of like a buffoon. <laughs> and it kind of defers like the raising of Steven to Steven's mom's friends who are just like this group of like space lesbians. (laughs) Again, you have to watch the show if you have. Okay,
0: yeah, that like, if that didn't get me over the (laughs) (laughs) edge.
1: Now you're on board. While my dad didn't hand me off to a bunch of space lesbians (laughs) to be raised, he was like a goofy character who kind of had to like make it up as he went along. He definitely didn't expect to suddenly be a single parent especially with like my brother at that point already kind of gone. You know, he was off in Los Angeles doing his thing as like a young adult. And my dad was left with this young kid s- starting to enter adolescence and he's got to raise them all by himself and not quite sure how to do that. You know, not quite sure how to like cook a meal or how to do laundry. And that's like d- totally reflected in Steven's relationship with his father in the show where they're sort of presented as Like they're definitely father and son and Steven goes to his dad for advice on particularly human matters. But they are also seen as just kind of like palling around and being goofy together and being like irresponsible together um, and figuring life out together. Like his dad in the show doesn't have it all figured out. He's not this like master adult. He's very much a kid himself. And they connect in a big way on music, Steven's dad in the show is a musician. And my dad is not a musician, but is a huge music fan. And I think a big way that we like grieved together was just listening to a lot of music together and him explaining like the lyrics of this song or the poetry of this artist um, and what it meant to him. I mean, and it's also like that music and that sort of like lyrical analysis was probably uh taught your to my poetry. dad from my mom oh, yeah definitely to my poetry but um i think his appreciation for music was enhanced by being with my mom so it was like a way for us to like bond over art together in the way that he had bonded with my mom over art um but yeah certainly launched also like my feelings on how powerful language could be in wanting to study and write poetry and in the same way i think despite being raised by space lesbians in the show Steven's dad has a lot of really powerful lessons to offer Steven that um, the space lesbians just can't as space lesbians from another galaxy. And always helps Steven kind of like come back down to earth and get in touch with his inner human and what he, you know, really most desires truthfully in his life. And it's just kind of always there for him, standing at his side, like with unconditional love. Dear old
2: dad, remember when you would sing to me when you'd do it again? Dear old dad, remember how I would sit on your shoulders, well, how about it now? Dear old dad, I was wondering why, cause I get older now, the days keep going on by. Dear old dad, remember this too, in this whole wide world there's no one like you. My darling son, I remember when I would sing to you and I would do it again. Loved child, remember this too. In this world of gems, there's no one like you.
1: There's definitely a lot of things I feel like I missed out on not having a mom. You know, I hadn't even hit puberty. So what would having my first crush on a girl be like if I had had a mom? What would I have done differently about college if I'd had a mom? You know, would I have pursued the same sort of interests if she was around? Mm -hmm. Would I think the same way? What pieces of advice would she have given me that totally would have like steered me in a different direction than I ended up in? What would she think of me now? Um, what would she think of my career choices what would she think of my brother you know my brother and his wife just had a kid you know what would she think of seeing her grandson there's just anything in life right Mm. like he's just every moment that she misses I have to wonder what she would make of that moment I remember becoming grumpy which is now like a a dominant trait of my personality (laughs) uh i'm definitely like a curmudgeonly person and i don't think i was that way before she died i think pretty immediately after her death it was just this feeling of being wronged or like things being unfair or things not being like just and being angry about it and i just kind of remember like the perception of me at school changed like I was, as I mentioned earlier, like uh, scrawny and brainy. I got bullied a little bit here and there, but that all changed after she died because there seemed to be this sense of like, well, that's the kid who has the dead mom. So don't mess with him. He's got enough problems. And uh, I remember just sort of like developing a, a reputation for being like moody and angry and like not someone like a scrawny, brainy kid that you just don't want to fuck with because he's going to say something really scathing that will just tear you apart. And, you know, like, I didn't have to throw a punch to, like, defend myself. But in terms of, like, our family dynamic, I mean, uh, like, huge shifts. When my mom died, my brother was a senior in high school. So a year later, he made the jump uh, after he graduated high school. Instead of going to college, he moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting and just go after his dreams, which meant for me that, you know, a year after losing my mom, my brother was now a state away and unreachable. I mean, obviously I could call him on the phone, but that's not the same as having your big brother around. So my household went from the four of us and all I'd ever known to just my father and I in the course of a year, uh, which meant that my dad needed help. I mean, he was also grieving his wife and, really concerned about his eldest son suddenly being in a major city of the country all by himself, also a state away, um, on his own at 18, and worried about balancing his checkbook now that my mom's disability was no longer coming in, and my brother needs money in Los Angeles, and I need money for new school supplies or new shoes, and trying to keep continue to pay the mortgage on the same house that they bought for four people that now only houses two, and like miraculously kept it all going, but it meant my father and I having to forge like a really intense partnership of us, you know, now we're doing all the grocery shopping, now we're doing all of the each other's laundry, we're cleaning the house together, cooking dinner together, cleaning up together, everything. I was doing homework while he's paying bills. You know, he did an incredible job. He came to really rely on me, and I came to really rely on him in a very intense way that I'm not sure every father and son goes through and i those are my formative years right i mean i was with my dad just the two of us basically from age 12 until 18 when i graduated high school and moved off to college so all my teenage years it's just the two of us and you know in that sense he's the one who really raised me and shaped me and was there for everything before my mom died we were a very honest household so <laughs> when it was just the two of us, you know, uh, nothing was off the table. I mean, I asked my dad how to masturbate (laughs) (laughs) like those, like, like point blank, like dad, I'm trying to do this and nothing's coming out. What do I do? Like those kinds of conversations happened in a very like crude, blunt way, uh, because it was just the two of us. And there really wasn't much to hide. And, uh, same in the same way like he started dating and would tell me about women that he was seeing and what he liked about them what he didn't like about them what he missed about my mom until eventually we just started smoking pot together <laughs> um this is a actually a big component for me too uh, this, this would probably be good my mom loved weed you know she was in such pain that she like smoked weed constantly And uh, even like had a drawer under her bed that I still remember that had like a big Costco sized bag of peanut M&Ms that she could just like snack on because she'd be like stoned in bed and just wanted them like right there. And my mom and dad had this nightly ritual of going out into our backyard and having like mom and dad time for them to just kind of decompress. and be husband and wife and smoke a joint um, while the kids were inside, like, getting ready for bed. And we were always told, if you really need us, if it's an emergency, like, you can come out back and get us. But, like, otherwise, like, backyard time is sacred and you're to leave us alone. And so from a young age, I just remember, like, the smell of pot (laughs) being, like, associated with their, like, quote-unquote backyard times and them coming in to, like, tuck me in as, like, a really little kid or, like, read me, like, a bedtime story and just, like, reeking of weed. <laughs> and, like, I don't know what it was, you know, at the time, but, I mean, very quickly I picked up on it. By the time I was, again, like, 7, 8, I knew that they were, like, doing drugs and that some people thought it was bad, but my parents said, you know it's illegal. Don't tell anybody that we're doing it. We could go to jail. You don't want us to go to jail. And we had a, do you, I don't know if you had dare.
0: Oh yeah. Up, there was one kid chosen out of every dare classroom to represent their school at the wheel of wisdom. And I was that child.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't envy you, but I remember uh, like in third grade, a dare officer came and was like, you know, raise your hands if your parents is a, are, like, our smokers. Oh, my God. Like, refer, like, we're, like, referring to cigarettes, you know? I raised my hand because, like, I was, like, yeah, they, like, smoke. And I went home that day and told my dad, like, yeah, I raised my hand. Like, I said that you guys, like, smoke. And my dad got very serious and, like, sat me down with my mom and was, like, when we say we make our own cigarettes, they're not really cigarettes. Like, they're, they're something else and they're very illegal and you're not to talk about it with anybody you know, a dare officer is going to tell you that it's like very bad and that it will like destroy people's brains. But like, it just doesn't do that for us. And so like, yes, it's bad for some people and it's good for some people. And we're some of those people that it's good for. So just like keep your mouth shut and we do what we do. So later on in life, having known that like that was a big ritual for my parents the first time i ever smoked pot was with my dad and my uncle and my brother uh, back in queens for a family reunion when i was 16. and it was like a you know summer so my dad was off i was off and my brother came out with us it was a very happy time to be back in new york with our big extended family and There was just a night out in the backyard of this big, beautiful house where my dad, brother and uncle were smoking a joint. And my dad was like, you're on vacation. You're 16 years old. Like, it's time. Like, take a hit of this and (laughs) see what happens. So I did. And I got really high and was like hooked and loved it. And remember my brother being like, of course, Jake needs this. Like, he's like the grumpiest person (laughs) I've ever met. And you know, again, my personality shifted into being like more easygoing and happy and uh less just flustered all the time. So that when we came back to Arizona after that family reunion, we just kept it going. Um, my, my dad and I. And it was like, as long as uh, you know, your homework is done, as long as your grades are kept up in school, like, yeah, we'll go out back at night when dinner's done and the dishes are cleaned and like we can get high together. Wow. That is so special. And it's, it's crazy. But in that way, like, I kind of slipped into my mom's role of like being the person that my dad would sit with at the end of the day and decompress with and smoke pot with. Yeah. And that just brought us even closer yeah. to just share that together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think like the biggest way, ultimately, that her, my mom's death and the grief that came out of it have really shaped me is my brother, too, is just approaching life with a sort of like jump before you look approach or mindset. like I my brother has said that he he's not sure he would have just taken the leap to go to Los Angeles to pursue acting if she hadn't died. like he he might have been a little more conventional and gone to school first, um stayed a little bit closer to home, but you know, he felt like, damn, life is short, and we could go at any moment. I just need to do exactly what I want to do, which is essentially what. I think our parents were always trying to push on us Mm -hmm. from the beginning. And like in a similar way, I mean, like after college, I just like up and moved to India and I was in India for a couple of years teaching and studying. And I think, you know, that's like a moment where I feel like my mom would have been really proud and really excited to see me do something like that. It's probably something that she would have really have loved to do herself, but also not sure I would have just like moved by myself to the other side of the planet, uh, to a completely different culture than my own. Um, if she hadn't died, you know, I think it really pushed me to be like, I've got to do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it, and no ifs, ands, or buts. And like, I don't really care what people think, and that's not important. And, you know, it's like kind of getting that baton that I spoke of earlier past our way of just like uh, the best way to not let my mom die in vain is to just like live a really fruitful, exciting life to the best I can. So I think it it definitely like lit a fire under both my ass and my brother's ass to like get our lives together and figure out what we wanted and try to make the most of things and not really settle or end up in a place like she was where it was like, yeah, I'm teaching because it pays the bills and this is where I ended up. It's kind of like, we have this steadfast refusal to uh, settle or kind of allow ourselves to fall into like a steady rhythm of like routine. We have to keep things changing and moving and growing because that's what mom, that's how mom wanted to live her life and she didn't get the chance to. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, certainly as I get older, it's like almost mind boggling to me when I hear a friend be like, oh, uh, you know, my mom's calling or I got to get on the phone with my mom or I got to go visit my mom or mom's coming into town. It's like mom has become like, this foreign word to Mm -hmm. me that I don't hear so often or think so often. It's, like, always a bit jarring to be, like, oh, yeah, like, people have moms. Like, that's weird, because I feel like I'm normal, right? Because I'm I'm the only life that I remember living. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's strange to me to think, like, oh, yeah, other people have these, like, complex, you know, for, for good or bad, you know, relationships with their mothers that are still around and maybe they're divorced from their father or maybe they never married their father or whatever maybe they're still together but it's always like this kind of like quick sharp jab whenever someone talks about spending time with their mom or um getting on the phone with them or something happened with them you know it's like oh man like i don't even know what it feels like to do anything with a mom and you're talking about it it's like it's so so blase mundane Yeah. yeah that's kind of like a jolt. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel you know, as everyone gets older, relationships get more complicated. And I certainly have a lot of people in my life who um, have very difficult or tricky relationships with their mothers. And there's definitely a piece of me that feels a bit resentful when I hear that, because I'm like, that's your mom, you only get one. And how can you be wasting this time bickering with them or refusing to talk to them or ignoring them when they're out there and they're alive, you know, like it's something you can't take for granted. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, you know, even people who have these complex relationships with their mothers, like that's your mother, you know, like that's even more (laughs) deep psychologically than, you know, anyone's relationship with their dad, even my relationship with my dad. So it's like, even if you hate your mom, you know, if if that if your mom dies, like, would you feel differently? Would you feel regret? I don't. I don't want anyone to feel any sort of like guilt or regret that they didn't, I don't know, take advantage of the relationship that they could have with their mother to the fullest. Yeah. Because I feel like I got cheated out of mine. So uh, it's almost like this sense of like, how dare you waste this opportunity to have a mother when I didn't really get a chance. So th- those are like definitely thoughts that I have today that I didn't have as a young kid. Mm-hmm where it's just like, yeah, the older I get, the more sort of envious I become of people who still have parents, you know, I'm like, man, I lost my mom at 11. And like, you know, we're going on 30. And you still have yours? Like, what the fuck is that about? (laughs) Uh, You know, my, my grandma is still alive. She's gonna be 98. That's my dad's mom. And it's like crazy to me that like my 71 year old father doesn't know what it's like to lose a mother. You know, like he's like he's 71 and still has not had to bury his mom. And, you know, that's like crazy to me. I'm like, you've gone 71 years with a mom. I made it 11. You know, that like those kinds of thoughts Mm -hmm. just send me spinning for sure.
0: And what do you feel like has helped you with your grief?
1: First and foremost has got to be my relationship with my brother and my father. I really think like we formed this sort of like triangle. Um, Like I mentioned early in our conversation, when the four of us were in a house together, we all had like a really unique relationship with every respective member of the household. And that carries through today. It's like, it's not a romantic love triangle, but it's definitely like a, a platonic love triangle of sorts between my brother and my father and I. And I think we all sort of felt the impact of my mom's death in a really different way. You know, my dad was in his 50s and still kind of in the middle of his career raising kids. My brother was, you know, out of high school heading to pursue his dream and start his real life. I was, you know, very young and heading into, you know, junior high school. We were all at such different moments in our lives when this one singular event, like hit each of us like an asteroid. And in, that, and in that way, I think all of us look to each other as being like, you're the only person, you're the only people in my life that can understand what that was like and what happened there. So in that sense, I feel like, you know, the three of us are a sort of team. Mm-hmm. Like we all went through this tragedy together and we all have a unique understanding of who each person is and what they need and um, how they changed after the, the big event. So we've we've over time grieved together in different stages and and helped us kind of process what happened at different stages of each other's lives.
0: When do you think of her most?
1: I think every time I've stepped foot into an art museum, I think of her because mm-hmm. those are some of my earliest memories of her. is her like kind of t- shopping me around in different museums and paintings and showing me different artists and. Um, artistic movements throughout history and helping me, like, you know, be able to identify, you know, oh, this is from this period, that's from this period. So I think, like, when I go into an art museum, I'm looking at it through her eyes, which, like, she trained me to do. And so therefore, right then and there, I'm, like, forced to think about her. Mm -hmm. I mean, now that I live in New York and know that she went to Tisch at NYU, every time I walk through Washington Square Park, I have to think, you know, damn, when my mom was in her, late teens, early 20s, she was hanging out in this park, smoking cigarettes and ballet dancing. She just kind of enters my mind in like fleeting moments where um, it's just kind of like her ghost is in the room for certain environments. And, uh, you know, the way I'm looking at a space or the way I'm looking at certain people um, is informed by her. And so in that way, she's kind of like, you know, she's within me and inhabiting me and vice versa.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Momstead. If you want to find out more about Jake, you can follow him on Instagram at jake.adler. That's J-A-K-E dot A-D-L-E-R. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at britt27ash. That's B-R-I-T-T 27 A-S-H on both Instagram and Twitter, or go to brittanyashleyfunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller. And the logo is by Christine Tuna.